Welcome to episode 99 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Michael Grunwald, formerly senior writer at Politico and Time magazine and staff writer at the Washington Post and Boston Globe. Michael graduated from Harvard University in 1992 and started his career as a Metro reporter for the Boston Globe, then joined the Washington Post, where he served as a national reporter, New York bureau chief, and Outlook essayist. He wrote the Post's lead news story on the September 11th attacks. In 2007, he became a senior national correspondent for Time, where he wrote cover stories on topics like the future of California and the decline of the Republican Party. His cover story about the policy roots of the Hurricane Katrina disaster won a $50,000 award from the Understanding Government Foundation, which he donated to New Orleans charities. He's won the George Polk Award for National Reporting, the Worth Bingham Prize for Investigative Reporting, and many other journalism honors, and is also the best-selling author of The New New Deal, The Hidden Story of Change in the Obama Era, and The Swamp. The Everglades, Florida, and the Politics of Paradise both received the gold medal for nonfiction in the Florida Book Awards. Michael recently left his job at Politico to author a book on climate change. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat. And I'm here with Michael Grunwald, formerly a senior writer at both Politico and Time Magazine, also was on staff at the Washington Post and the Boston Globe, and now writing a book on climate change. Michael, welcome to the Climate Champions. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Lee. So what motivated you to start getting into climate change mitigation? It's sort of a funny story. Well, I've been a reporter now for gosh, embarrassing. I guess we're, we're almost on three decades now. But I never really focused much on the environment until in 2000, when I was at the Washington Post, I got completely obsessed with the Army Corps of Engineers. I started writing about how they were cooking the books of their environmental and economic studies all over the country to justify these insane, economically ridiculous and environmentally destructive water projects. And through that series, I stumbled into the Everglades, which was supposed to be the, the good news story about how the Army Corps had gotten its, its act back together. And long story short is I ended up writing an entire book about the Everglades. I moved to Miami. I met my wife. I wrote this book called The Swamp that is a sort of history of the Everglades. I'm proud of it. I think it's good. It did very well. But I completely missed the climate change story. Um, I wrote a book about an ecosystem that is at sea level and is completely endangered by rising seas. And I mentioned climate change maybe three times in this tome. So it was shortly after that, uh, after the, the book came out in 2006, which was really before there was a real focus on climate change for even environmental reporters. I mean, people were aware of it. 
but it just wasn't a thing. Because actually in 2006, I went to the Washington premiere of a climate movie, and it wasn't the one you think. Um, it wasn't an inconvenient truth. It was Laurie David's climate movie, which I think was called Too Hot to Handle or something like that. I remember John McCain was there. Joe Lieberman was there. Climate was going to be the next thing. And I was like, wow, this sort of sounds like a really big deal. So that's the sort of long story short of how I first got interested in climate. I ended up writing my first real big climate story was in 2008 when I was at Time Magazine. I did a cover story about how corn ethanol, which was being hyped at the time as this sort of great green fuel that was going to help save the climate, was in fact a climate catastrophe. And you could actually trace a line from that story in, I think it was March 2008, to the book I'm writing now, 13 years later, about how to feed the world without frying the world because it's really about some of those same issues. You first started exploring this in 2008, and now in 2021, you're writing a book. So what went on in between with regards to climate in your head? Well, it's funny. Well, look, I've always been a public policy reporter. I've written about government and some of the, you know, kind of politics that affects policy, but I've never just been environmental reporter. I mean, starting after my Everglades book, the environment ever since then has always been kind of one of my things but certainly not my only thing. During the financial crisis, I got super obsessed with the Fed and financial crises and how they work. I've always written a lot about transportation. I write a lot about urban issues and cities. But in 2009, 2010, after my fascination with the financial crisis, I got interested in President Obama's stimulus bill, the Recovery Act. And my main interest in it was, this seems like a really big deal. And everybody's writing about it like it's this big joke. It was like the porculus, this kind of crazy $800 billion spending spree. And I was living in Miami, so I didn't really know much about the kind of Washington scene at that point where you know, even taking the stimulus seriously was sort of silly. But one of the first things I found out about it was that there was $90 billion in it for clean energy when the federal government had been spending like 2 or $3 billion a year. So this was like going to increase spending like by several orders of magnitude. I didn't know if it was a good deal or a bad deal or a corrupt deal or an innovative deal, but I knew it was a really big deal. So I ended up getting completely obsessed with the stimulus, which led to my second book, which is called The New New Deal. It's about the hidden story of change in the Obama era. And really, one of the key themes in the book is about how this stimulus bill that everybody thought was a joke essentially jump-started America's clean energy economy. You know, it sort of threw money at anything having to do with clean energy and climate mitigation. And some of it didn't work, right? There's basically a whole chapter about Solyndra, which became just about everybody's takeaway from that $90 billion for clean energy. But the big story of the stimulus was how it really created America's solar industry, America's wind industry, America's electric vehicle industry, America's LED industry. Those were really the four big triumphs. But that was really when I started focusing on climate. Most of the book was about the economy, the politics of Obama trying to bring the United States back from this incredible hole. But I got really interested in the climate stuff and particularly the way this part of it was so miscovered, the way that there was this 
notion that there had never been a climate bill passed in the United States. And I'm kind of like, hey, here's $90 billion. That's kind of a big deal. And it was completely transformative. And I've always kept that in mind, even though that was 12 years ago. But I think climate is a really big problem, but also it's the kind of problem that government can make a really big dent in. So ever since then, it's not that I've been a full-time climate reporter, but I've always been interested in it. And if I haven't written full-time about climate, I've always at least tithed the climate. I've written a lot of climate stories. It seems you didn't have one moment. You had many motivating moments. They just kept on coming in and pushing you in that direction. Yeah, I sort of stumbled into the environment and kind of missed the climate with the swamp. And then with the New New Deal, which was supposed to be about the economy, I kind of stumbled into the climate. And to take it one step further with what I'm working on now, look, climate is a big story and there have been a million books written about it, but most of them are about the fossil fuel story, which is, don't get me wrong, a really big story. It's probably two thirds of the climate problem. And it's mostly what I've written about. I've written about wind and solar and electric cars and the coal I, you know, I embedded inside the war on coal in 2015, um, wrote a huge magazine story about that. Wow. I think it was sort of the first big story about the Beyond Coal movement. I wrote about the Keystone Pipeline, like every climate reporter. Really, my book is about the rest of the climate story, which is about food and farms and forests. And it's really about land, this question of how we're going to use the land we have on earth to feed the world and also store the carbon we need to save the world. So I stumbled into that as well. Kind of funny story. In, in 2018, I was working on a magazine story for Politico about my own experience in the green economy. I mean, obviously, usually I write about public policy, but in 2017, I got solar panels and I got an all-electric Chevy Bolt. I decided, you know what, it's uh, partly I want to put a little bit of my money where my mouth is, but mostly I'm a cheapskate and clean energy had become an economically rational thing to do. And I thought that would be a kind of cool story to tell. And I had this kind of throwaway paragraph near the beginning where I'm talking about how basically I did this because I like money. And I'm talking about how in many ways I'm kind of a climate hypocrite. I don't line dry my laundry. Uh, I don't unplug my computer at night. I still eat meat. And I'm going through all these things that I don't do because they require a little bit of sacrifice. And then I realized I wasn't even sure if not eating meat was a really good thing for the climate. You know, I know everybody talks about it. It's always in the like, you know, if there's like 50 things you can do to save the climate. It always says like, oh, you can be a vegan. But I really didn't know. And since I'd written about things like biofuels, where everybody thinks they're good for the climate, but they're not, I realized like, I shouldn't just say this, I should check. So I called this guy, Tim Searchinger, who is actually my main source for all that Army Corps stuff that first got me into the Everglades, and was also my main source for that biofuel story that got me into the climate. And I just knew he knows stuff. And so I was like, I thought, you know, maybe this could be a really good counterintuitive story about how meat isn't really that bad for the climate. And I called him up and I was like, you know, everybody always says meat's so bad for the climate. Is it really that bad? And he's like, yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and that phone call in 2018 was kind of the beginning of my journey into the other half of the climate story. 
turns out the reason, you know, there are a bunch of reasons meat is bad for the climate, but the main reason is that two thirds of our agricultural land is taken up by livestock. The earth is becoming a pasture and we need the earth to be a carbon sink. So that's sort of what led me into this, you know, it turns out that Tim, who, you know, was my source on the Army Corps and the Everglades and then biofuels has turned into the world's leading authority on land and climate change. So now he's the kind of main character of my book about how we're going to fix this problem of feeding the world without frying the world. You're showing me that you have incredible passion for this. What personally drives you? I've always been a policy guy. And as a journalist, you kind of write stories and you can't always be driven by, are the politicians going to read my story and do the right thing? Because who knows? All you can do is just sort of write the story and let the chips fall where they may. That was always kind of my approach to covering transportation and energy and finance and everything else I've written about. Climate, it's a bigger deal. I got two kids. They're going to inherit this earth. So I'm interested in these issues that that there's something to learn. I'm curious. A lot of my friends are the kind of, and I salute them, and it's amazing what they do. They go and they report on genocides where there are evil people committing horrific atrocities, and they try to bear witness for the world. I've never been as interested in that kind of thing, which may sound terrible, but I'm, I'm more interested in kind of trying to make complex policy issues easier to understand. And in many ways, climate change is like one of those horrific atrocity issues, right? In the United States, there's an entire political party that's basically denied the problem. It really is this kind of issue where denying it can lead to millions of deaths. So that, in some ways, kind of pushed me away from focusing full-time on the climate. Fossil fuels, to me, has become sort of that kind of story, where at this point, we know what the answer is. The answer is to electrify as much of the economy as we can and power the economy with clean electricity. It's just a question of whether we're going to have the political will to do it, which is a great political story. But again, like pure politics has never been my interest. What has really gotten me fired up about the food and farms and forests and land side of the equation is that there's still some figuring out to do on that side. It's not a simple question. It's kind of 25 years behind the fossil fuel part of the equation. But of course, we have just as little time to act on the food and land and meat part of the equation. So we got to figure it out quick. And it's a really interesting problem. Fossil fuels, they're bad. We should use less of them. While food and meat and land, those are really hard. And it's not clear what's the best, you know, there's, there are a lot of ideas about how to do farming in a climate-friendly way, and some of them have to be wrong because they disagree. There are a lot of technologies out there that could help us feed the world without frying the world, but not all of them are going to work. And so it's really interesting which ones are going to be helpful and which aren't. So in some ways, that's what drove me to write about this part of the climate equation. I think it is, like everybody says, it's the existential challenge for humanity. It's the moral issue of our time. And that's great. That's why somebody should write about it. But the part I'm writing about it is, I think, really complicated and interesting. So that's what attracted me to write about that part. In many of the podcasts that I do, a debate arises between whether we're going to solve this with technology or we're going to solve this 
by having people change how they behave. When I try to get people to change their behavior or talk to them about changing their behavior, it's super hard and the bang for the buck isn't necessarily even there. So I really do think it has to come from government and technology making it so that's all there is because most people have a really hard time changing. And with the land use and the animals and turning the world into grazing land, it's not clear yet what that technology is and how we're going to win. You know, you sort of touched a few of my buttons there. Good. My book, a lot of it is going to be about technology and government. But it's funny, there's no question that we're in a lot of trouble and we're not going to get out of trouble without policy changes and technological improvements. And that's a huge part of what I'm writing about. But it's funny, in the climate movement, it's become sort of almost uncool to talk about individual action because what really matters is government action and corporate action. This is Bolsonaro's fault, and it's Putin's fault, and it's Trump's fault, and it's Exxon's fault, Smithsfield's fault, and Tyson's fault. But we're buying the cars, and we're eating the food. The first Earth Day in 1970. I was there in Union Square, Manhattan. No way. With my mom. Well, you probably saw, remember the Pogo poster? (laughs) We have seen the enemy, and he is us. And there was a picture of Pogo looking around and his beautiful swamp is full of litter. And look, the Earth Day movement did some incredible things on the political side, right? It led to the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. And that stuff is awesome. It certainly led corporations to at least have to talk the talk if they haven't always walked the walk. But the environmental movement has kind of gotten away from the idea that we've seen the enemy and and he is us, right? Now the enemy is big oil. The enemy is the Republican Party. And I think partly because environmentalists got this kind of reputation, like they were sort of annoying scolds who tell you not to use plastic straws, harass you about whether you use paper or plastic, and just generally look down at you if you eat red meat. There's been this sense that the environmental movement should just focus on go hunting where the ducks are, right? Like Willie Sutton, you know, he robbed banks because that was where the money is. Well, the environmental movement is going to go after governments and corporations because that's where the emissions are. But first of all, that's not true, right? I mean, you know, you see those stupid studies that say like 100 corporations create 71% of our emissions and therefore capitalism is bad. But, you know, first of all, those 100 corporations, they create 71% of fossil fuel emissions, right? They're just fossil fuel companies. And by the way, they're not all like Exxon. Some of them are like Pemex. They're like the state of Mexico. So like dismantling capitalism isn't really going to help with that. But the main point is like they are associated with 71% of those fossil fuel emissions, but they're not forcing you to drive your SUV to the mall. You know, they're not forcing you to use propane on your grill. Emissions are us. And that's where we do have a responsibility beyond what the government does and what technology does. Once the technology works, once the LED light bulbs are available, once the electric vehicles are available, once there are meats that are grown in labs, I will put out there, there is some responsibility that we start to leverage that so that we're not part of the problem. I think that's right. I think there's responsibility generally. And look, what I'm always telling people is that better is better than worse, right? People talk about how are you going to solve the climate crisis? How are we going to avoid climate apocalypse? 
Well, we're not. The Bahamas already had their apocalypse. They had a hurricane that pretty much wiped them out. Paradise, California is gone because of climate-driven wildfire. The island of Kiribati is going to go underwater and they've got to evacuate everybody. And even if we, every one of us stopped using fossil fuels tomorrow, Kiribati is screwed and there's nothing we can do about it. Miami might be screwed regardless of what we do. Well, look, you know, bad things are coming and it's going to get worse, but we have a lot of control over how much worse it can get. And again, better is better than worse. And way worse is worse than only a little bit worse. (laughs) So I do think that there's, at the margins, there's a ton of things that individuals can do as well as governments and corporations. What I always say, particularly to the environmental movement, one thing we saw during COVID, and this is obviously not the way you want to do climate policy. You don't want to have a deadly pandemic come along and kill 600,000 people and make it so that we can't drive and go to work and do the things we like to do. But one thing you saw is that like, you know, when we stopped driving, the smog left Los Angeles. You could see the skyline again. It's hard to find a more vivid proof that emissions are us. And people say like, oh, well, airline emissions are going to go like this. They're going to go way up. Well, suddenly we stopped flying and airline emissions didn't go up. They went way down. Obviously, this is not the way we want them to go down, but it's a reminder. And this has been a big theme of my work. My last book was about change in the Obama era and how change happens. And you're going to wildly oversimplify what I've been doing for the last three decades. The kind of conclusion is change is hard, but change is possible. And I think that's true with individual behavior as well. It's going to be really hard to get people to eat less red meat. But you know what? In the United States, even before people started screeching about the the climate, we've had a dramatic transition over the last 30 years from beef to chicken, which has had a gigantic impact on the climate. If we were still eating beef at the rate we were eating it 30 years ago, our agricultural and food land-based emissions would be way higher. So again, change is possible. And this is something I bang my spoon on my high chair about a lot, is that even though I understand why a lot of climate activists don't want to harass people and say that climate is your fault when they're convinced that it's Trump's fault and it's Exxon's fault and it's every politician who isn't doing everything they can's fault and it's capitalism's fault. I do think that climate activists have done a terrific job of basically sounding the alarm that we are in a climate crisis, that this really is a crisis, that our emissions are creating a disaster for humanity and all the other species that we share the planet with. And I just think it's kind of crazy to, on the one hand, say, we're in this crisis. And on the other hand, your individual emissions don't matter. The point is that everybody's emissions matter and we need to emit less. That goes for Exxon and it goes for you. Of course they matter. And so does eating less food just because it's unhealthy to eat more food and smoking. Most people have a very hard time changing and being responsible even for themselves. Like I said, change is possible, but change is hard. And that's why the most successful fixes are going to be the ones that make change easier. And that's where you look on technology. 
Tesla didn't come out with a shitty car. Tesla came out with a great car. They don't want electric cars to be associated with like sacrifice. They made a car that's fun. And over time, through their learning, through economies of scale, through improvements in battery technology, which by the way, were started through the stimulus and have been driven in many ways through government investment, they're trying to make it cost competitive as well. So that making the change isn't a sacrifice. You're starting to see the same thing on the meat side, where with Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat, they're not trying to make those old hockey puck veggie burgers that nobody really liked. They were vegan food, right? Oh, you want a vegan burger? No, they're trying to make meat. They're trying to make something delicious that tastes like meat. And, you know, and of course, while the cow is a pretty mature technology, these guys are in the labs. They can come up with better meat. They can come up with healthier meat. And so I think that's exciting to go back to clean energy. When I first bought my first house in Miami at the end of 2007, and I looked into solar, the closest installer was four hours away. And the prices were just completely absurd. And I remember when I called the guy, one of the things he said to me is like, well, do you care about the price? <laughs> you know, like is price any object? I was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, price is an object. So I, I remember calculating at the time that I could achieve, I think it was something like one fifth of the energy savings just by painting my roof white for like one one hundredth of the cost. So that's what I did instead. But then 10 years later, when I moved to downtown Miami to Coconut Grove, when I looked into solar, then suddenly it was a no-brainer. It's an eight-year payback. It was much easier. The point I was going to make, though, when I wrote about clean energy in my Obama book, and you know, it came out in 2012, and I was very bullish on those four technologies I mentioned, LEDs, solar, wind, electric cars. At that point in 2007, 2008, those technologies did not exist. By the time my book came out in 2012, I was convinced they were going to take over the world and fast. And now a lot of people will tell me like, wow, you were so prescient. You know, you saw that these things were the future. And I was, my first instinct is always to say, well, thank you very much. The fact is I was not prescient. I thought it would be much faster than it's been. I thought solar, it was like, oh, you know, they cracked the code. Solar got cheap, super fast. Now everybody's going to get it but it's not that easy. It's not just a mathematical formula of once solar gets cheap, everybody adopts, or once LEDs get cheap, everybody adopts, or once electric vehicles become cost competitive over their lifetime. It's already cheaper to own an electric vehicle than to drive an internal combustion engine. And you know, I always talk about how it's like every eight miles I drive, it's like putting a dollar in the jar. And yet adoption has been very slow. This stuff takes time. And I think people really underestimate the importance of behavioral change because honestly, the status quo, inertia, like those are powerful forces. When you write about climate, you're writing about change, not to be a broken record, but change is hard. And I think people who have just said like, oh, well, we just need to fix government policies or we just need to shame Exxon and then things are going to change. I'm not sure they've really thought it through. People are going to have to change. All arrows in the quiver. That's right. That's right. And, you know, all those stupid cliches about, you know, it's not a silver bullet, buckshot. That's right. That's absolutely right. It's yes and. My one caveat I always point out is that people use that stuff 
just because like there's not one solution and we're going to need lots of solutions. We need to keep an open mind. That doesn't mean that every solution is good. I hear that a lot with biofuels. Oh no, can't have a silver bullet. We're going to need everything. Well, maybe not the thing that makes the problem worse. If you do biofuels out of garbage that would have went to landfill, then I'm for that. Absolutely true. No, that's right. That, and that's, you've hit on the story of my book. The story of my book is that land is not free. And for too long, we've treated land like it's free. Yes, like Dr. Sylvia Earle said, the fish in the ocean are not free. It took billions of years to create what's down there and harvesting it implies that we planted it and we did not and we need it. That's right. And there are costs to everything we do. There are, you know, the economic phrase, right, is opportunity cost, right? It's like that Robert Frost poem about the road not taken. If you want to grow fuel, okay, and that's great. You're maybe displacing a little bit of gasoline, which creates some carbon emissions, but you're also displacing food. And somewhere somebody's going to need to grow more food, and they're probably not going to grow it in a parking lot. They're going to grow it in a place that used to be storing carbon. That's the basic land problem. We need to use our land as efficiently as possible, just as we've realized we need to use our energy as efficiently as possible and get it from the cleaner sources, the better. Change is possible, change is hard, but we really need to think through these trade-offs. I think with fossil fuels at this point, you can mostly say that the answer is to use less of them. But for land and food, the answer is not just to like starve people in the third world. That's not the way to solve our climate problem with agriculture. We're going to need to produce a lot more food to feed 10 billion people. And we're also going to need to figure out ways to do it so that we don't set the planet on fire. Can you talk about a setback that you've had along your journey? I wrote a 400-page book about the Florida Everglades. Called The Swamp. It's called The Swamp. And I'm proud of it. And you know, look, I'm told it's one of the best-selling nonfiction books about Florida ever. They made a documentary out of part of it on PBS. People have said very nice things about it. That said, when it came to climate change, I blew it. You know, I had a scene in there where when Bill Clinton was signing the Everglades Restoration Plan into law, which was the largest environmental restoration project in the history of the planet. And after he signed it, he's sitting alone with a couple of staffers, one Republican, one Democrat, because this is like bipartisanship and beautiful and, you know, everybody loves the Everglades. And they're just sitting around, you know, shooting the shit. Bill Clinton goes, you know, they don't do something about climate change. Your Everglades is going to be underwater. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I put that into the book, but that's pretty much the only time I mentioned climate change in this book about a ecosystem the size of Connecticut that's at sea level. And I didn't write about sea level rise. Can you talk about the success that you're most proud of? Well, I think what I've been able to do fairly well in my career is take semi-complicated issues and make them pretty easy for people to understand and try to make it into a fun story. I did that in the Everglades and the swamp with the story of man and nature in South Florida and how we've created this abusive relationship with nature that we're now belatedly trying to fix. I think in the New New Deal, I took this $800 billion monstrosity that had become a gigantic joke in Washington and wrote about how it was in many ways the most important piece of social and economic legislation and environmental legislation since the New Deal. 
and help people understand a little bit about how change works in the American system of government. You know, and I hope I can do that again now that I'm taking on this other big question of how we're going to fix the food we eat and the way we make it so that we can keep this very nice planet we have because, you know, it's a really nice planet. And the only one. It's like the only one that's got pizza. (laughs) So, So I sort of feel like it's another complex, important story that hopefully I'll be able to shed a little bit of light on. So what do you think about the future? How's the earth going to go the next 20, 30, 40 years? You know, in many ways, I've always been a sort of cockeyed optimist. I'm friends with David Wallace Wells, who wrote that really excellent book, The Uninhabitable Earth. And I remember when uh, the first came out, we talked and I was kind of like, yeah, but I think it'll probably be habitable. (laughs) And and he was kind of like, well, why do you think that? And I said, well, I just don't think things are going to get quite as bad as you do. And I should mention that, that, that now David, who is still a very pessimistic guy, but he no longer thinks things are going to get as bad as uh, as he did a few years ago when the when the book came out. And again, it's because uh, you know it goes back to change is really hard, but change is possible. And we've already seen, like in 2010, it looked like the U.S. was going to. At that point, we were half of our electricity came from coal, and there was a lot of talk about making it 75 percent. And now we've gotten rid of half of our coal. Great Britain is using less coal than it's used since the invention of the steam engine. So things change, and I'm really optimistic about that. And having said all that, things are going to get worse. There's already a lot of warming baked into the cake. And one of the problems that I wrestled with so much when I wrote this book about Obama's stimulus, where he took office at a time when things were absolutely falling apart, we were headed for a Great Depression. He passed this gigantic jobs bill that made it so that we didn't have a depression, so that things only got somewhat worse instead of spectacularly worse. And of course, it was a political disaster (laughs) because, you know, it's hard to put on a bumper sticker. Things would have been much worse without us. Hopefully, if things go well, we're going to have these gigantic climate bills that are going to transform the fossil fuel economy into a clean energy economy. And things are still going to get worse, (laughs) which I think is going to be a political problem. But I don't really have an alternative solution. You just have to try to make things less worse. Do you have any advice that you want to share about how people can help since you believe that they need to step up and help? The thing to keep in mind is that climate is a math problem. And so you want to focus on doing things that reduce emissions a lot. If you want to help the climate, there are certain things that don't help at all. Like if you want to eat organic food, that's great. But don't think that it's going to help the climate because it doesn't. And then there are some things that might help a little bit, like turning off the lights when you leave the room or composting or unplugging your computer at night. And those are great things and you should do it. But again, that's going to have a very small effect. Now, there are 8 billion of us. So anything that any one of us is going to do is going to have a small effect in the large scheme of things. But if you really want to reduce your own carbon footprint a lot, The big things you can do are fly less, which I should say I'm kind of a hypocrite about because travel is awesome. And for my job, I need to travel a lot to do it well. But the less you can fly, the better it is. Go solar. I have an eight-year payback. It's a great economic deal. Put in LED lights, get an electric car. It's also cheaper over the lifetime of the car. And most of the cars are really good cars. 
eat less red meat, eating less meat and dairy generally is better, but especially beef and lamb, those are by far the worst. So I love meat, but I've tried to reduce particularly beef. I've cut out almost entirely. Feed your pets less red meat. That's also really helpful. And finally, waste less food. Because remember, we waste almost a third of our food. And in the United States, that's mostly you and me who waste it, either by throwing out that avocado because it just got mushy by the time we were ready to eat it, or just like leaving stuff on our plate or at the restaurant. In the rest of the world, a lot of the food waste problem has to do with bad distribution and other problems. But look, if we waste nearly a third of our food, that means we waste a third of the land used to grow it, a third of the fertilizer, the pesticides, the water used to grow it. Don't do that. So those are big ways you can help. And again, people say like, oh, but you know, my pet doesn't like chicken. Well, then feed your pet beef. Like you can't do everything. Better is better than worse. Like we all want to try to be good people and trying to help the earth is a way to help try to be good. Go solar, get an electric car, fly less, eat less beef, waste less food. There you go. Is there anything else you want to say? Climate is depressing. I get it. It's like not a happy story. There are lots of happy stories in climate. Incredible companies that are doing amazing things, inspiring activists who are fighting the power. But it's a bummer. But at least for me, I find that psychologically and also just rationally, the way to approach it is as a problem. And let's try to be problem solvers. I think when you just think about it as this like gigantic existential crisis all the time, that's one of the reasons you get all this climate denialism because it's just like, uh, you know, we don't want to deal with the inconvenient truths. But I think it's also why you get all this kind of climate doomism where it's like nothing we do matters because we're screwed no matter what. And I think that's like they're kind of equally dumb. It's a really big problem. Bad things are going to happen, but it would be a really great thing if we can make less bad things happen. And I think there really is a moral responsibility to try to do what you can to make the situation better, even though it's not going to be good. And related to that, for people in my world, I think there's a real responsibility to try to think this shit through to get into the hard stuff about, you know, what kind of agriculture works and which of these technologies are really promising and which of these solutions are actually reducing emissions because the math is hard. I'm not a scientist. I'm definitely not a mathematician. I got to do the reporting to sort of the people who really understand these things. But unlike fossil fuels, which at this point are really obvious on the food stuff, I think we all have a lot of thinking to do. And for me, that's kind of fun because that's my job is to think about this stuff and report on this stuff and learn about this stuff. But I do think in climate world, there's not necessarily a lot of openness to learning and thinking and embracing solutions that might not fit our ideological priors. Wow. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. You were a writer for three decades. You wrote a book, The Swamp, The History of the Everglades. In The Swamp, you regret there wasn't much climate discussion in the mix, although you wrote it recently in 2006. Cornethanol, it is a climate crime. You wrote about that when you worked for time. The Obama stimulus, he went on a spending spree, $90 billion to help clean energy. One of the projects that clean energy, it did hinder 
Cinder was one of the few that failed. People focused on Solyndra. Michael called his friend Tim. Does it matter what to eat? He said, yes, it's very bad to eat lamb and cow meat. You have two kids to inherit the one world we have to live in. So that's why it's a given that you are driven. When it comes to feeding the world, we still don't understand. We have to find a balance between food farms, forest, and land. With a billion on the planet, a secret we're still trying to furled is how to feed the world without frying the world. We've already done damage that could take us to the brink. We can't use all our land for pasture. It needs to be a carbon sink. It's not enough to shout at business and governments and curse. Step up. Do something. Better is better than worse. If we had cow and lamb like we used to, the earth would already be more stricken. So it's lucky that lately we've been eating more chicken. Don't design EVs that look cheap and sleazy. We've got to make it look cool to make change easy. We've got to have solutions that are easy and look nice because people don't want to sacrifice. It seems like the problem's the worst it can be, but we've actually come far. Look at solar and wind. and the EV car. The answer to climate change, a silver bullet, it is not. So we need all arrows in the quiver. Gotta use buckshot. If we don't do something quick, we're going to be fried. Michael says he's an optimist, although cockeyed. Obama taught us an economic lesson. Although a political disaster, it was better than a depression. You are enthralled of the solar you installed. Thank you very much. Michael Grunwald. Word to your mother, Lee. I'm impressed. (laughs) All right. I reached out to Mike after reading a political story, Hot Planet Summer. It turns out that was his swan song. It was his last story prior to leaving to work on his third book. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Mike's passion is obvious. I won't soon forget, better is better than worse, food, farms, forest, and land, and feeding the world without frying the world. I'm excited to read his climate change novel, and I'll let you know when it's published. And as Mike said, there's no silver bullet. It's a buckshot approach. Go solar, get an electric car, fly less, eat less beef, waste less food. Better is better than worse, so just do what you can to help mitigate climate change. (laughs) 